announcement. You can go ahead and take a seat. Man, welcome to um, Reality Church. Um, man, if this is your first time, so thrilled that you are here with us um, this morning. I'm sure this, you know, this morning, as if, like, if you've never been to church or if it's your first time in church in a long time, you know, you're going to hear us sometimes use some of this lingo, you know, and we use words like faithfulness and the cross, etc. And I promise we like want to explain everything uh, that we mean by those things, you know. But we essentially, uh, man, we follow, the, we follow the scriptures. We follow the Bible. That's our authority. And today we continue in following the scriptures uh, in the gospel of Matthew. So if you've never read the Bible and you're interested and you want to learn more about Christianity, here's what I want to let you know, okay? Um, we have been walking through the first book of the New Testament. That is the gospel of Matthew. And it documents the life of Jesus. And we've been walking through that week by week. So if you've never read the Bible and you're exploring Christianity, I want to invite you to grab a Bible. We have one for you. At the end of the services, we can give you one. And I want to invite you to just read with us the gospel of Matthew. And as you're doing that, you can ask questions. You can listen back. Uh, We put uh, these sermons, these messages up on YouTube, and you are welcome to them. Okay. Quick note about Ukraine. And I know some of us here have deep connections to Ukraine. There's actually particular family who um, spent uh, many of their months um, in Ukraine. I want to let you know that um, when you give, okay, to reality, part of what we do is part of those resources go to an organization called Send Relief, okay? It's a relief organization. We take our cues from them. I've already been in touch uh, with people that represent Send Network. And, uh, and right now, the status essentially is we're praying and we're preparing. We're praying and we're preparing. There are some people on the ground of course, there's first responders already around the world and in the church that are being mobilized in order to meet needs in Ukraine. But I want to let you know that we're, we're, like we're on it, okay, and that we actually contribute uh, to relief efforts in Ukraine, okay? So that's Send Relief. Of course, if you have more questions, we'd love to answer them at the end of the service. We can talk. You're like, man, how, do we, how can we help? Um, you may have a connection, actually, in Ukraine um, where that can give us a little bit more insight even as to what we can do to mobilize the church there. Okay, that's one of the beautiful things about the church, isn't it? Um, The ministry of Jesus, I want you to think about this. Uh, We covered this last week. He did three things when he came uh, to this earth. His ministry consisted of teaching, of preaching, and of healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching for the nourishment of your mind, okay? Preaching for the transformation of our soul, and healing for the body, right? For the healing of of our bodies. And you know what's really cool about Christianity? What's really cool about Christianity um, is that it's, it's the nonprofit, okay? It's the nonprofit that has done historically the most good for the common good of humanity. Now, listen, we, I, I, we have to agree, right? The church has also done some terrible things. And generally, we hear about those. What we don't hear enough about sometimes, it's the good things that the church has done over the centuries, like going into a city, establishing a school, right? Teaching. Establishing a church, preaching for the transformation of our souls, and then building of hospitals. It's historic. That's why here in Miami, even we have Baptist Hospital. If you go to a lot of the major cities in the United States, you know what you'll find? You will find a hospital that was established by the church. Isn't that amazing? Because part of the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the church includes those three things. Teaching for the nourishment of your mind. Preaching for the transformation of our soul and healing, right? 
I was going to say that like 20 minutes into the message, you know. Um, I'm going to have to transition differently later, okay. But um, so um, today, 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 it, it felt appropriate. felt appropriate in that moment. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, cool. Uh, so uh, today is really important because we start Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the most important sermon and the most famous sermon that has ever been given by a human being. It's called, many people call it, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And the reason it's the most famous sermon is because it was given by the most famous person in history, Jesus Christ. And also because it contains some of the most famous lines in the entire Bible. If you would have asked people a generation ago, even if you weren't familiar with Christianity and you're just kind of like watching a football game and I'd ask you, hey, what's the most famous verse in all of Scripture? You would have said probably John 3.16, right? John 3.16, you saw Tim Tebow, boom, whatever. I don't even know what happens, but it's John 3.16. You would have said, man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we're in a different generation now. And if you were to ask somebody, hey, what's the most famous thing that Jesus ever said? You may actually quote the Sermon on the Mount. And you may say something like, "Uh, man, Jesus said, do not judge, for you will be judged. The Sermon on the Mount is so famous that it has quotes like, hey, uh, turn the other cheek, right? Walk the extra mile. We're going to encounter some passages here in the scripture. I mean, it's, it's so rich, the sermon, that we could mine it, I mean, like to infinity and take it to the depths of forever, all right? And we would still glean some new learnings from it. It is perhaps the most loved and also the most hated part of scripture. The early church, they meditated deeply on the Sermon on the Mount. They, they really took seriously the words of Jesus that are contained in the passage that we're about to read right now. St. Augustine, one of the most famous political philosophers of all time, a theologian of the church, he considered it to be the standard for the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, right? He based his writing of a book called The Cost of Discipleship based on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount influenced at length the theology of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Even those outside of Christianity have had to have an opinion on the Sermon on the Mount. People like Gandhi. In terms of some of his thoughts on nonviolent resistance. Others like Frederick Nietzsche hated the Sermon on the Mount. He was not somebody who followed Jesus. He thought that the God of Christianity presented in the Sermon on the Mount, that this was a weak God. That this was soft. That this is a weak message. And that's, and that's exactly, right? And that's because the Sermon on the Mount, it's like the exact opposite of the survival of the fittest. When you read the sermon, you, you're going to realize that this is a countercultural manifesto for the people of God. One of my friends says it like this. He says that the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus, it confuses religious people and upsets the world around them. Confuses religious people, but also upsets the culture around us. That's the way it is. Listen, when you follow Jesus, like when you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, I, I want to I promise you something. You're going to upset religious people. 
and you're going to upset the world around you, okay? You're going to have to be prepared to be misunderstood. You got to be, because listen, at the end of the day, Jesus, when he invites us into his kingdom, into a relationship with him, he's calling us to live differently, to be different, to be different. Part of the reason why, listen, there's empty church buildings in a city like Miami. Part of the reason why there's churches being sold in some of the most strategic parts of the city, even while it explodes. Many times when you look back at history, it's because the church, instead of being this countercultural witness of Jesus Christ, and it's actually looked a lot like the culture, or it's become highly religious. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Religious to the point where they actually don't care about the world around them. But not so with you and me, amen? The reason why we started this church is because we want to follow in the way of Jesus. We want to lead people to discover and display the reality of Jesus. That's our mission. That's why we are here. And he's calling us to be different, to live different, to live differently. What's Jesus getting at the Sermon on the Mount? He's going to outline what it means to be a disciple, a follower of him in this new reign. Did you know Jesus, like, he never invites himself to be kind of a side thing, right? He's not like an app that you put on your operating system, okay? He, you know what he demands? Like, I'm going to be the OS, the operating system and the hardware and the whole thing. That's what he asks. And in return, he gives to you the kingdom of God. What, what does he do in the Sermon on the Mount? He describes a new way to be human. It's a new way to be human. So what is the countercultural character of every Christian? Okay, I've said this. I said this last week. Um, and I may have shared it a couple of times with you. But I want to prepare you. If this is your first time at Reality and you want to join us, I want to invite you to join us as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to be prepared to be offended. I want you to be prepared to be offended because at some point you're going to learn that Jesus will not agree with you. And hopefully that reveals to you that he's not just some sort of moral teacher. Because that's the perception a lot of people have about Jesus, right? That he's just a moral teacher. He's just a kind of really nice guy. You know, I, like, I don't like the church that much, but I like Jesus, you know. Well, you're going to get to know the words of Jesus. And what you will see is that he's not just claiming to be a moral teacher. He's claiming to be God. And that's a really good thing, because if you want a God that you agree on with everything, then you're probably not looking for God. You're looking for confirmation bias on your beliefs. Followers of Jesus live differently. We live differently. He's calling us to be different. But what kind? What kind of different? How? What does that look like? Well, let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 5. This is how it all begins. When Jesus saw the crowd... He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. His disciples, meaning his apprentices, his followers. And then he began to teach to them, saying, okay. Um, in those days when teachers, when rabbis taught, especially authoritative teachers, they would go up in a taller place. They would, be, they would kind of stand atop of a hill. And then you see him here in this text sitting down. It's like to show authority. And so what would happen back then is it, it, it looked different from, uh, from today, right? 
Like if you were a teacher, you would sit down and people would stand up. But now, teachers stand up and you get to sit down, which is kind of cool for you this morning, right? Uh, especially, please don't fall asleep on those seats. But um, this is the time of Jesus' public ministry where like, there were massive crowds surrounding him. People began to gather and he began to teach, right? That's part of his ministry, to teach, preach, and to heal. And so this is how he begins the sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, how do we use the word blessed today? How do we use it? In the South, when people say, bless your heart, what does that mean? It's like an insult, right? It's like a really nice way to insult you. But <laughs> man, bless her heart, you know? That's, uh, by the way, my wife's from the South. That's why I was able to kind of like imitate really poorly, a little Southern accent right there. Um, but um, anyways, so, so some people use it as kind of an insult. But now, especially here in the city of Miami, how do people use the word blessed? Especially hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. What does that mean? Like, oh, dude, you know what? I got the car. I got the house. I got the girl. I got the guy. I got the crib. I got the job of my dreams. I am hashtag blessed, which means it's really more like a humble brag. It's a humble brag. Hashtag blessed is a humble brag. And that's not the way that Jesus uses the word blessed, right? Blessed. Um, it's actually the Greek word makarios, okay? Makarios. Everybody say makarios. Makarios. Why am I telling you that? Listen, I don't bring this out all the time in the Greek. Like, listen, your Bible translation is faithful, all right? I want you to know that when sometimes we lift something out of the language, it's not because we have some, like, secret, like, super secret knowledge, you know, uh, that no one has access to except the pastors. No. Um, the reason I lift this up is because in language, in translation, uh, if you speak Spanish or another language, then you know that there are certain words that don't have a perfect equivalent in another language. And that is the case with this word makarios. Okay? Some people, some translations, if you have a Bible, have translated this word as happy. Okay? Happy are those who are poor in spirit. But, of course, it doesn't really encompass all of that because, I mean, would it make sense? Happy are those who mourn? No, immediately. Like the translation doesn't work fully. This word is not describing in, like in, in its entirety the inner state of a person. It's not like, man, um, emotionally happy are you who are poor in spirit. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't encompass that, okay? Uh, this was used in ancient Greece as a salutation, as a welcome, okay? So imagine, uh, this is why it, it could be a challenge to uh, get around it. Imagine somebody saying like, blessed, <laughs> you know? What's up? You know, it's like the first thing you're saying, congrats. Some people, some people would translate it as congratulations. It's a description of God's favor. I wanna give you a sense as we read this text that when you see the word blessed, here in Matthew chapter 5, what is called the Beatitudes. I'm going to explain that, what that is in just a moment. 
that this is like essentially God's attention is on you, like God's approval. It's a sense of getting God's approval. I love how Max Lucado puts it. He says, blessed is like the applause of heaven. The applause of heaven, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They get the applause of heaven. They have favor. They have approval of God. It's a description of the good life. Do you get it? If you don't get it, it's okay, right? But if you get it, I need you to tell me. Do you get it? Yeah, cool. Okay, so it's like approval. It's approval from God, which can make this first beatitude. Beatitude is a transliteration of the Latin word. Dude, there's so many terms, right? So many terms. You got blessing. You got makarios. You got beatitude, which means blessing, right, in Latin. And it makes this first beatitude sound like this paradox. It's a paradox of the kingdom, right? Look at the first beatitude. Once again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. God looks with approval on those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Remember, God is calling us to live differently. And one temptation when you read the Sermon on the Mount, one temptation will be to read it out of context and to try to gain the approval of God by doing these things. Because of the very definition of that word, blessed, okay? God looking at us with approval. God looking at the situ- at the state with approval. You can be tempted to look at this and be overwhelmed by the Sermon on the Mount. You're like, dude, I can't do this. In fact, historically, there are people who, it's not so much happens right now in the West. There's some people that have taken religion very seriously in their life as they're pursuing something. There's people who have like, essentially left the faith because they look at the Sermon on the Mount and it's like, I can't do this. It's too hard. I can't do it. But we have to get the order right. That's why in chapter 4, the first thing that Jesus says, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the entrance into the kingdom is not by doing the things on the Sermon on the Mount. That's not how you enter into a relationship with Jesus. You enter, okay, By changing your direction. That's what repentance means. It's like to change and receiving and believing the good news of Jesus. Receiving and believing the good news of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is not a law that you must follow in order to gain entrance. These are states that the gospel creates. These are states the gospel creates. It's do these things and God will empower you through the Holy Spirit to live in accordance to his kingdom. Amen? So, the word for poor that Jesus uses here is the word, there's different words for poor. It's the word for those who are absolutely like destitute. The word was used for the beggar and the prostitute, for the person that had nothing. Okay, what does it mean to be poor? To be poor is to lack what you need, right? That's what it means to be poor. What does it mean to be rich? is to have more than what you need. That's what it means, right? So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be totally destitute in spirit? It's to recognize that without God, you are spiritually destitute. Like we have nothing to offer God except what he first gives to us. That because of our our sinfulness, like 
Like we're poor in, in spirit. We need him. We're totally dependent on him. God looks with favor on those who are poor in spirit, essentially who are needy. It's like we need you. It's no coincidence that when you look at the life of Jesus, who did he hang out with most of the time? He hung out with the sinners and who else? If Jesus came back right now and he was walking around the city of Miami, you would be spending a lot of time where? With the poor, right? It's not, it's not the only people that he hung out with, but he hung out with the poor because there's a connection. There's a connection with those who are not distracted sometimes by material wealth. There's a connection. They're not distracted. They understand that they're needy. They understand it. So to be poor in spirit is to understand that you need, that you need God, okay? And I want to make sure, like, I want to clarify, like, being wealthy is not evil, okay? Jesus doesn't condemn that. But we will see in Matthew that this can be a very big distraction that actually lures us away from the reality of who we are and what we need, okay? To be poor in spirit, right? To need to, to be spiritually in poverty before the Lord is to recognize that we need Him because of our sin. That's the first step in living differently. This is not a coincidence that this is the first beatitude. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what it says. Blessed are those who are poor in the spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It belongs to those who realize that. I need God. That's the first step. And then he moves on. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What a paradox. Like those who mourn, they, they have God's attention. They will be comforted. Now, I want you to think about the people who Jesus is preaching to in the sermon. Primarily Jewish people, most of them who were not wealthy, who were oppressed by the Roman state, people who lived during a time when humans, they didn't, you know, generally didn't live long on this earth. People could be sold into slavery. Children can contract a disease and die. Like These are really hard times for humanity. And there's a connection here between the first and the second. There's a connection between mourning and the effects of sin, the consequences of Sin, like we mourn, those who mourn the brokenness of the human heart that leads us to do stupid things around the world. The, the sinfulness, right? It's not just what we do against God, but literally a condition that we find ourselves in. We mourn that, like we mourn the loss of life in a place like Ukraine right now. We mourn that. That's a, like, it's a, it's a good thing to be able to experience that state when you come face to face with the brokenness of the world. Think about it. It's 2022, and we're talking about a war in Europe. We mourn that. We mourn that. And in the midst of that mourning, Jesus makes a promise that those who are experiencing like intolerable and incomprehensible mourning in this life, that they're going to be comforted that I'm looking at you. That word, the comfort, is the word paraclete. 
The word for the Holy Spirit is also the paraclete later on in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. I don't know if you've lived through this. I know I have this testimony. Listen, when I've experienced really difficult things in my life, in my relationship with God, man, I've been able to experience the comfort of the Spirit of God in an unimaginable way. In a way that I don't even understand what's going on right now. This situation is not fixed. It's not done. And yet, God, you have comforted me. But it's not just a comfort that you experience now. This is a promise of a future kingdom-like consummation. It's the completion of the kingdom. I mentioned this last week, and I want you to follow me, because this is going to be important, because the most favorite subject of Jesus' teaching is the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, and it's a kingdom that has come, but not fully. That there's a present reality. Yes, we are comforted by the Holy Spirit now, but we don't experience that full comfort until the end. Do you understand? It's what theologians call the already, not yet. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. We get a taste of certain things in the kingdom. There's an echo of what will happen in the future that we can taste today. Today you can experience that. If you're mourning today, you can be comforted by the Spirit of God. If you grieve whatever it is in your life, I believe that the Holy Spirit can minister to you in a very special way today. Where are you? You know, in the West, we have been notoriously known sometimes for people who don't understand how to grieve. You know that? Especially like in, in America. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there. We, it's a society that values progress. This is how countercultural this sermon is. Think about it. Jesus is calling us to live different. He's encouraging us to mourn. And we're going to be comforted. That's the part of the beauty of the range of emotion that is expressed in the Christian faith. It's not all like super happy all the time. Da, 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 da. No, that's not all Christianity is. Absolutely, we can experience. Was that from the Smurfs? I was. Um, it's, it's, um, it's something we can experience unimaginable joys, but at the same time, we have at least 33% of the songs of the Bible in the book of Psalms. They're songs of grief, they're songs of lament. And God says to you and to me, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And some of you need to hang on to that promise. This morning, it's not a bad thing. God has you, and he can comfort you. That's part of how we live different. Look up verse number five. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Seriously, Jesus? <laughs> the humble inherit the earth? Can you imagine how people took this in the midst of like Roman conquest? It doesn't look like that, Jesus. You said you would give us this promised land. Who are these people? They're right here. Because that's what, that's what generally the world values. It's power. It is strength, right? That is, that is what people value. Those are the people that... You take the earth. You take, you go first. But instead he says, blessed are the humble. This is also a word that can be used for the word meek, if you've used that. Humble and meek. What does that mean, blessed are the humble? It means, it doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that you're wishy-washy and indecisive, okay? It doesn't mean shyness or like, oh, I'm an introvert, therefore humble. No, okay? 
it's not just being nice. It's a sense of not being impressed with your own self-importance. You're not not impressed by yourself. You're humble. You're gentle, like Jesus was. Matthew 11 describes Jesus as one who is lowly and gentle in heart. And yet Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And when people are doing something in the temple, he like drives them out in power. So what is it to be humble? You will inherit the earth. What's that talking about? Um, This is a reference for Jewish people of Psalm 37, which says also that the humble will inherit the land. In that psalm, uh, God is asking us to trust in him and to wait on him. One characteristic of those who are humble and gentle and meek is that they put their trust in the Lord and not on themselves. Do you see? You're putting your trust in God. You're able to wait on him. And the promise in this case is not only this land promise that the people of Israel have been given, right? But also in the context of the kingdom of heaven, we're going to inherit something even much greater. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Then verse number six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Think about it. I mean, we could spend, and we probably will spend a couple of sermons on just these phrases because there's so much in here. There's so much. Listen, Christians are to live differently. The first is we want to be or we want to live as those who are spiritually poor. We want to be able to mourn for we know that we will be comforted. God's approval, right? is on those who are mourning. There's a blessing, a sense of blessedness there for those who are humble, for those who are meek, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. What a promise. Like part of what happens when you enter the kingdom of God into a relationship with Jesus is that your appetites are changed. Like you receive a new nature, right? And appetites only knows two things. Appetite knows two things. Um, Now and more, right? Now and and more, more. Our appetites, they set the direction for our lives. They really do what we desire, right? We become what we desire the most. We are shaped from a young age as we are formed. Think about your childhood. Think about how you were formed, the desires that you were shaped, your appetites. How did, think about the person you are today as you think about the connection of those desires. What kind of desires should we nourish Well, what we read in the scriptures is that part of that desire that happens inside of your heart when you come into a relationship with Jesus is you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for righteousness, okay? God doesn't just care about what you do. He actually cares about your heart, about what you desire, about what you desire. And righteousness here doesn't just mean right standing with God, okay? Righteousness, the definition is right there, right, right, like living right before God. It's used a little bit differently in the writings of Paul. If you read the scriptures, I want to clarify this with you. Righteousness in the gospels generally is not this justification by faith that Paul talks about in, later on in the epistles of the New Testament. It's not just being made right with God because of our sin and God paying you know, for the forgiveness of our sin. This righteousness um, encompasses like 
right living before God. That word also encompasses a sense of justice. Like those who hunger and desire for righteousness, they want to see the world be made right again. And think about what hunger and thirst meant for them. Not just for you and me. We're like, oh, we're thirsty. We just open up a faucet and drink water. Not so with them. You know what would happen if you were like hungry and thirsty in Palestine? It's like you would be like, like panting. You, you need to survive. That's the sense of desire here. Like, man, we hunger for righteousness. There's a thirst like, that needs to be quenched. This righteousness of right living before God in our personal lives. But also to see the world around us be made right, which is why if you look at a gloss in a dictionary of Greek, you will see that this word is translated oftentimes justice, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For It's both personal and it's also corporate. That's why Christians are about justice, amen? Like we want to live in accordance to God personally, but we want to see justice done in the world because we know that it's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I shared this a couple of months ago. Christians in the early church, they were known for five things, the characteristics of the early church. They were known for care for the unborn, okay, a new sexual ethic. They were known for the diversity and multi-ethnicity, multi-class fellowship that they enjoyed. They were known for care for the poor and for forgiveness. Generally, in the, at least in the United States, like the Republican Party is known for this, the Democratic Party is known for this, and nobody's known for forgiveness, okay? But God calls you and me to live different. Like we receive the values of the kingdom, which is why we can say with confidence today, hey, guess what? What's happening in Ukraine? That's an injustice. We need to do something about that, right? We can also say when we've seen the examples of racial injustice, we can say that's injustice without getting all triggered. We can talk about care for the unborn and saying, do you know that's an injustice? I want to see that be made right. These values, they're kingdom values. And God calls us to live differently, which is why we need to be prepared to be misunderstood. Do you see? And I love the promise here. I love the promise that that hunger for righteousness is going to be filled. It's going to be satisfied. We have a God of justice that will not be mocked. And in the end, he promises that he will make everything right. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Church is going to confuse religious people and we're going to upset the world around us. All right. Verse number seven, and I'll end with this, okay? Which means we have another 35 minutes, okay? Um, (laughs) Blessed. (laughs) Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. The first four Beatitudes, they deal with our vertical relationship with God. The next four, including this one, it's about our relationship with people, our relationship with the world around us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. 
It's not getting what you deserve. The difference between mercy and grace is this. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's a gift. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Do you get it? That's the difference between mercy and grace. And mercy in the scriptures encompasses at least two things. It's mercy for those who are marginalized, who are oppressed, those who are in the margins of the kingdom. But it also includes forgiveness. Mercy. Ministries of mercy deal oftentimes with the poor, right? Deal with those who cannot help themselves. And so you are granting them mercy for the things sometimes that they live through. It's mercy. It's mercy. But then also mercy encompasses forgiveness. And forgiveness, of course, is at the heart of Christianity. Forgiveness. It's not a, he's not talking about a cheap grace. When we talk about forgiveness, it's not just uh, you did something terrible for me and now I'm avoiding it and I forgive you and we don't have any issues. Okay? That's not the kind of forgiveness that Jesus talks about. It's not uh, an unhealthy codependency. Do you know what I'm talking about here? It's not an unhealthy like, yeah, absolutely everything is right, but really deep in your heart you're like, it's like you can't even live, right? It's, you're so broken and you're so hurt. This is the kind of forgiveness that genuinely considers the loss that you have incurred, the wound that you may have experienced, and by the power of the Spirit of God is expressed in mercy. It's expressed in mercy. I've read this story before. I read it this past week. Um, there was a woman by the name of Corrie Ten Boom who wrote a book called The Hiding Place where she recalls a post-war meeting with a guard from the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. That's where her sister had died and she herself had been abused. And she writes this story. Uh, I'm going to read it for you this morning. She says this, I was at a church service in Munich when I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's, pain, blanched face. The guard came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, to think, as you say, that he washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendal the need to forgive, I kept my hand on my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. 
And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Forgiveness is a miracle. To be able to be merciful to somebody who has hurt you is to recognize that you yourself have been given such a gift in Jesus Christ even though you did not deserve it. This is the way of the kingdom. He calls us to live differently. And so I ask you, as we think about even the first beatitude this morning, as we think about what it means to be spiritually poor, it means that we, we are needy before him, that we need him, that in order to even extend such an invitation of forgiveness, that we need his power. Are you living in accordance to this reality? Do you want to experience this in your life? Because Jesus makes that available to you and to me today. Let's pray. Father, I, right now, Lord Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to focus on you and on the great mercy that you've given to us, Lord. Father, I pray today for those who, whose pride has been wounded, God, that instead of giving into their pride, that they would turn to you. I pray, Father, that they would be humbled by your power and your grace, Lord, that they would know that it's, it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord. It's your mercy, God. Father, I pray for those who are here who are mourning, Lord. God, I pray even as, as we spend some time praying and singing, Lord, that we would be able to give you and bring to you those tears, that grief, the things that are happening around us, Lord, that we would bring them to you, Lord, today. And that you would comfort us, Lord, by the power of your spirit. God, help us to be humble, Lord. Help us, God, to be like Jesus, who was gentle and humble in heart, Lord Father. I pray, God, that you would, you would give us an appetite, Lord Father, for righteousness, for right living before you, God. Today, if we are far away from you, Lord, we have been led astray by our sin, and different things that have happened, just being distracted, God, today. I pray, Lord, that you would just increase our appetite for you, that you would give us a hunger for you, a hunger for righteousness, a hunger for justice, God, that is disciplined by your scripture and disciplined by you, Lord Father. And of course, I pray, God, that if there are things in our heart, Lord Father, in terms of when it comes for mercy, Lord, when it comes to forgiveness, Father, help us, Lord, to be a people of mercy, Lord. Help us, God, to be a people who forgive, God. 
bring that to our minds today. Are there, is there anybody, Lord, that we need to forgive? And of course, lastly, Lord, do we need to experience your forgiveness today, God? I pray for those here who haven't received your mercy, that they would take this opportunity, Lord Father, right now that you would draw them to yourself, Lord Father, right now that they would know, God, that you're calling them, inviting them into a relationship with you in this kingdom, that there is a purpose, Lord, greater than they have ever envisioned in their life. I pray, God, that they would receive that invitation by the power of your spirit today. And so we sing to you, Lord Father. We meditate in you. Help us, Lord, today to live different, to live in accordance to your kingdom, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.